0: Uh, For those who are late coming in, my name is David. I'm on staff here. It's my pleasure to welcome you. Uh, If you would, turn in your bulletins again together, we'll look at our prayer focus for today. When we gather for worship on Sundays, we uh, purposefully uh, spend some time talking about what God has done and is doing. We sing together, and then we pray together. And so uh, this has been a part of how Grace Community Church has worshipped from the very beginning. Uh, And so our prayer focus is right underneath that welcome from uh, Pastor Brad. In addition to that prayer focus, be mindful of that list of prayer requests. Uh, if you're not yet connected to Grace on the City, that's how we send out uh, prayer requests through the week. And uh, these things are more regularly updated that way. Uh, but a lot of you uh, prefer to just be old school and read it in the bulletin, so we keep it updated there as well. And so, uh, make note of those things to be praying for these folks uh, and those particular needs. Especially when to pray. I haven't. I didn't check to see if there's an update from Nick and Chelsea about whether that uh, Eli was dismissed or discharged. He is? Awesome. So um, I want to praise the Lord then uh, for uh, Eli being discharged uh, from the hospital um, being born a little bit premature. Uh, we want to just praise God that he has provided everything that Nick and Chelsea have needed uh, and caring for their foster kids in the meantime as well. I you want to praise the Lord that Uh, Dave Weatherington has had some improvement and didn't need to go in for a surgery this week, Um, so we're grateful for that. It's a little uh, update to that prayer request. But let's let's look at that uh, focus that's right there in the middle. Every week we have a different specific focus, and usually someone else is uh, leading through this time. We kind of rotate that around. Um, And so uh, this had been on my heart for a while, and I wanted to find a way to uh, make it Uh, occur in the course of our our worship service. And so I want to pray specifically for um, the Syrian refugees. And so that's a huge topic. (laughs) So many specific things to pray for. Uh, But I try to narrow it down a little bit and and give us some direction. Uh, So we want to pray specifically for our brothers and sisters who are still in Syria. So there are Christians who are in Syria. If you can get your mind around literally being persecuted from every front so not only Assad's regime, but also ISIS. And they don't have anywhere to go because of the issues with some of the countries not wanting to. So, so our brothers and sisters, like our brothers and sisters in Christ uh, who are persecuted from every side. Praise God that he says you are pressed but not crushed, persecuted and not abandoned. Like, but we need to pray that they remember the scriptures. That they are encouraged by that in the midst of what might not feel anything like Uh, what Paul promises. Uh, And so we want to pray for our brothers and sisters, uh, especially. In addition to that, I want to pray for the churches of Europe. Um, So as these refugees are getting out by all means possible, uh, seeking to cross borders into other countries, um, there are not a whole lot of evangelical churches, believe it or not, in Turkey uh, or in Hungary or in, um, in Jordan, in these places where these refugees are going to. So it's a tremendous opportunity for the churches that are there, for the churches that believe the gospel and love people in light of that. It's a tremendous opportunity for those churches to grow as the gospel brings a hope beyond just the physical to these refugees. So pray specifically for the churches in Europe and in the Middle East that are receiving refugees that they might step in and do what only the church can do. Only the church can bring a hope that is beyond Uh, Just the physical, uh, you know, immediate needs, and those are just as vital. So we also want to pray for um, these refugees uh, and the ministries and churches that uh, have impacts uh, over in Europe. And so this again is is a huge thing. It's hard to get our minds around, but there are a lot of ministries already trying to do things. uh, And so we want to pray that we, as a church in America, would be discerning of the ways that we can have an impact in Syria. If God's gifted you financially to have wiggle room in your budget to give, uh, do some research of the, the groups that are giving most directly uh, to those who are suffering. Uh, if you're in opportunity to to go, there, there's probably ministries that are help structuring those things as well. We want to pray that as a, as a church, uh, as the capital C church and all across the world and the, the bigger the church in America and then also our local church, Grace Community Church, that we would be mindful of however God would lead us, uh, to care for the refugees. The most immediate way that we can do that is through prayer. And so that's why we spend time doing that today. So with these three kind of focus uh, aspects on our minds, uh, I've asked Scott to open us in prayer. Uh, please lift your hearts with us as uh, as we pray together, and then I'll, I'll close after Scott prays. So let's pray. God, we lift up the, the churches of Europe and and East Asia that are receiving refugees, and pray that that these churches might be empowered by the Holy Spirit to uh, to love with meeting those immediate needs and love longer term, helping families adjust. As God has prayed, God, I pray that uh, these churches that have that are on the ground in the front lines would be uh, just so uh, overcome with your love for them that it spills over into uh, an overwhelming love for all those who are, who are coming across those borders. I pray for the church in America that we would be wise uh, in responding to uh, how this issue has been politicized. I pray that we would be wise uh, in using our resources as we can uh, to love and serve those who are in such a different part of the world. I pray that you would help uh, each of us to indeed uh, attain to what uh, Paul has commanded him, to pray without ceasing. And I thank you that you have given us uh, the Holy Spirit that enables us to actually do that, to turn our thoughts to prayer, to make them captive. I pray that you would now take uh, these things that we offer to you as tithes and offerings, God, and build your kingdom. Uh, Let your glory continue to be uh, displayed in our community Um, I pray that you would be glorified as we give, over and above even, what we can. uh, Because you have given everything to us in the first place. So we give in response. And we love you. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. I'm grateful
1: that we can gather openly and proclaim Jesus to be Lord of all without fear of any persecution. How appropriate that today we... Talk about the Syrian refugees, especially the believers amongst them, because the people in Hebrews uh, that were in Rome when Hebrews was written to them were in very much a similar uh, situation. I, I I love to read history. Anybody else strange like that, you just love... I, I love history. Uh, I always... My my go-to uh, guy is Mr. David Webb over here. I told him about a book last week, and he responded exactly like I knew he would. I've got to read that book. I'm going to read. I knew I knew what his response would be. If you love history, you recognize something about it. There's a foundation that has to be laid in order to get to the good stuff. I just finished a book called "In the Garden of the Beast" uh, about. The American ambassador, and especially his daughter um, William Dodd and his daughter Martha, who uh, were in Germany in the mid 30s, he was the American ambassador. Just so much I could, t- I better not even start going into it. It was fascinating, it read like a novel after the first five or six chapters. You, you have to lay that foundation. It is absolutely necessary to do that. Think of these first three weeks of Hebrews in that manner, would you? Okay, it's a foundation being laid. It's going to take a dramatic turn next week where uh, there is very significant application Um, that's going to be made, but you're not going to say yes. You're going to say, oh my, that is some kind of application that is being given to this and to these people. So, information, application. That's the pattern in the New Testament. It's the pattern in Hebrews over and over again. Information, application. Speaking of stories, this this history read like a novel, but speaking of stories, is there someone in your family... That whenever you're watching a movie, figures out what's going on before anybody else does. You, don't you think the Lord has a sense of humor that he puts one of those in every family? I mean, it's just like, it's like, well, you, I, you know what's going to happen? What? Have you seen this before? No, I just know what's going to happen. Shut up! You know, it's like, there's some people you just say, don't, before the thing gets started, you like, don't even start with that, all right? I want to know when I get to the end. Every once in a while, a story is so well written and told and performed that it's like, wow, I did not see that coming. Most of the time, we're not surprised. You know, it's like, okay, I didn't figure it out, but I know it's one of these three guys. Every once in a while, it's like, whoa, I did not see that coming. But then when you go back and watch it again, you see the clues that you missed. Well, the Old Testament was a bit like a mystery to the people who studied it. I mean, the Jews were were very much looking for a Messiah, just not a Messiah like Jesus. Almost everyone who studied the Scriptures anticipated God's anointed one coming on the scene, they would know him because there were certain things that were said about him, but they they expected this man to come on the scene and then deliver Israel from its oppressors, all foreign oppressors. He would ascend to the throne in Jerusalem and everybody would be impressed. Well, let me go back. That's not exactly accurate. At first, they didn't anticipate a Messiah. When King David expressed a desire... To build a temple for the Lord, the Lord said to him through Nathan Nathan the prophet, We, we have our own Nathan the prophet here, by the way, at Grace, but through Nathan the prophet, the Lord said, You have been a man of war. You cannot build the temple. But I tell you what, I am going to do something very special for you and for your family. God promised David through what we know as the Davidic covenant that he would always have a descendant who would rule over God's people as king. In 2 Samuel 7.14 it says it it like this, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity I will discipline him with the rod of men and with stripes of the son's of men. So prophets the prophet Nathan was talking about somebody very special, but 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 clearly this king was not a perfect man. I mean, look at the last part. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. Prophets, though, often spoke in riddles. And it was understood that they spoke about events that were in the near future and in the, in the distant future. So, okay, he's talking about this, but he may be talking about something greater. And there was just something about that first line. I will be to him a father. And he shall be to me a son. Maybe there was more to this promise than one of David's descendants ruling on the throne. I mean, look at Solomon. We all thought he was going to be a great one. And he started out incredibly well. But he didn't finish so well, did he? Maybe uh, God was hinting at something different than Solomon. This seemed especially so when you place the promise to David along some of the Psalms that King David himself wrote. Just think about Psalm 2 in which the nations who rise against Israel are not only opposed by Yahweh, but they're mocked by Him. That's how much God thinks of His people. And to the kings, king of Israel, although when you read these verses it seems to be written to someone greater than just the king of Israel. Look at Psalm 2. The Lord said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Now no king of Israel ever understood himself to be the ruler over all the kings of the nation. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. One thing is for sure, you better not mess with Israel because Yahweh's help, with Yahweh's help, they will utterly destroy all who oppose them. But what are you going to do with the fantastic language of this verse? The Lord said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Is this language that God would use in speaking to one of the kings? It's rather lofty praise from Yahweh. To a king of Israel, even one as great as David. And don't forget, Psalm 110, verse 1, our text for Hebrews. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Sit at my right hand. The days when David and Solomon ruled Israel were wonderful, heady days. I mean, they conquered all of their enemies. There was peace and prosperity In the land, just as God had said there would be when when his people followed the law. The law, of course, that God had given to Moses. Even when David sinned, he repented with a broken heart over his sin. And God forgave him. But no one keeps the law perfectly. And Solomon's heart was drawn away by the foreign gods that his 700 wives worshipped. 700 wives! Can you imagine? After Solomon, you never knew what you were going to get in a king. I mean, some sought after Yahweh. Most everybody went bad at the end. But even those who sought after Yahweh. But sometimes... The kings just followed their own hearts and they, they followed other gods' idols and the Lord would bring punishment upon the nation when the kings were wicked. He disciplined his people. He brought other nations to defeat Israel in battle and there was always a high cost to their sin. So you can see, can't you, why some of the teachers of the, of the law began to think that the exalted Language in the Psalms implied someone other than just the king of Israel. Maybe God is going to do something really special for us. Prophets like Isaiah spoke of one who would be born of a virgin that would be called Emmanuel (coughs) or God with us. And you know what that meant to them? God's going to defeat all of our enemies. That's what it meant. God is with us. Our God is greater than all the other gods. And we will defeat our enemies with Yahweh as our God. Now that might not mean much to us who live in these safe borders. But if you lived in a country, if you lived in a country that was constantly vulnerable to attack and defeat, you would understand how much these promises meant. To the people of Israel. Look. War doesn't affect us. Unless we choose for it to affect us. Since the draft ended in the Vietnam War. Only families who have sons and daughters. Who choose to go to war. Those are the only ones who go to war. We have a choice in it at this particular point in time. And so we forget about this conflict that is constantly raging in most of the world or it's always simmering just under the surface. There's constant conflict everywhere, but we have the luxury of thinking about life and thinking about the world in terms of whatever is in front of our eyes. Not so the people of Israel. There was always, and so this promise was incredible. You shall call his name Emmanuel. God will be with us. Our Messiah will deliver us from our enemies. Over time then, an expectation of a Messiah grew in the hearts of God's people, especially after they were taken captive. Oh Lord, would you free us, please? Surely God would send His anointed one to free the Jews and allow them to rule themselves and even rule the entire world. The scriptures seem to imply that such a one would come. The king would be a descendant of David and there would be no mistaking him. He would be royal, regal. He would be on everybody's radar. Watch this guy. Watch this guy. He's Maybe he's God's anointed. Maybe he's the Messiah. David was the greatest king in Israel's history. But the promise was that one greater than David would come. A Messiah. And so much time was spent by the Old Testament scholars... Trying to solve the puzzle of the Messiah. Everyone, including Jesus' disciples, expected a political Messiah, right? I mean, so, Jesus is saying, I'm going to Jerusalem and I'm going to die. And they're saying, hey, that's crazy talk. That's when Jesus said, "Peter, Satan, get behind me. Because there's a bigger battle going on than just what you're seeing. And, and he says, oh man, I'm so sorry. Hey, by the way, who's going to sit on your right hand and your left hand? I mean, they just didn't get it. They're expecting this military leader who was going to be the leader of the world. No one expected a Messiah who would be turned over to the Romans by the very people who knew the most about the promises of the Old Testament. The Jewish leaders, the religious leaders, they were the ones that were constantly saying, "Will he come? Will he come?" Look, I read several years ago, and, and, and I, I didn't run it down this time, so maybe I shouldn't say it, but 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 I read that the that the Jews were actually expecting the Messiah two three hundred years subsequent when, to when Jesus came. So they were the original date setters, except in reverse. You know, we expect Jesus is going to come yesterday. I. Did I miss the end of the world on September 23rd? I think I did. Is there a super moon somewhere? Blood moon? You know what? This pattern is all over the scripture. Eve expected, this is the man. The the leaders thought, this is it. Jesus is going to come back over and over and over. People are constantly expecting God to do something. When David was given that promise, they thought, maybe Solomon. I mean, look, he looks like the part, right? He's the guy. So, I'm not suggesting we don't look. In fact, one of our great sins is we don't expect the Lord to return. Because we live in heaven. So, why why do we need Him to return? Well, it was unthinkable that the Messiah would be crucified. Unthinkable. That was before the puzzle had been solved, though. After Jesus rose from the dead, it all began to make sense for three reasons. First, during the time between Jesus' resurrection and ascension, He explained to His disciples how the prophecies had all pointed to Him. Now, we don't see the times where Jesus is talking. But Peter was not in a daze when he got up at Pentecost and started putting two and two together in the Old Testament and saying, hey, it was all pointing to this day. Jesus was leading them and they were searching like crazy. Secondly, the Holy Spirit filled in many of the blanks for the apostles. There were a lot of things that they just, just didn't make sense. Then they started going back and saying, well, look, all these verses, we thought these were about the Messiah. And you know what? A lot of them talked about Jesus defeating or the Messiah defeating all the enemies of, the, of God's people. And we still believe that's going to happen. But this other part was clearly there too. In Isaiah 53, and Psalm 22, we just missed it. God had to make purification for sins through the Lamb of God. And so... The Holy Spirit helped them in their study. And then third, the Lord gave the details of the gospel message to the Apostle Paul. Look, when you, when you read through the New Testament, you're looking at, at the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And, and some people say, Jesus' teachings are so simple. Jesus' teachings were interpreted by the apostles, if you will. You have to understand. It puts it. It it, again. It's that puzzle. It's not simple, and yet it's solvable. Allison, last week, I'm so grateful for the for the for the wife that God has given me, for the encourager that God has given me. After sermon, she usually says that was great, and I'm like, yeah, whatever. But. She's, she, she's just an encourager. And it's rare that she points something out. But last week she said, you know, you might want to think about this. Because I said, if you are God's child, he expects that you will be able to understand this. And, I, and she's right. We all learn at different levels, right? There are layers of information here. Some of you are getting this much and others are getting this much. And part of it is because you've been at it longer. You've been thinking about it longer. So I don't want anybody to be discouraged. But God will help us if we hang with it. In fact, here's my confidence in the Holy Spirit. If you've been here these three weeks talking about Hebrews and how it's introduced and trying to figure out how it all fits together, it may feel like utter Greek to you. It may feel like, what's the point? One day the point will be crystal clear to you. And you won't even know. You won't even remember this. But the because of the information that we're gaining, then it all comes together when it's supposed to, and the Holy Spirit puts it all together. So let me encourage you to just hang in there, and let's do what all of the people of God have done through the years. Try to figure it out. Over time, God figures that, puts it out clear for us, and we're able... To see it. So, three different ways that that the Lord has solved the problem for us. Once again, the book of Hebrews may be the best place in all Scripture to see how the entire Bible works, how it all fits together. I'm going to finish up chapter 1 today. And I know we're halfway through now. I realize that. So, we're going to read it in just a moment. But I want to say this, if you were just reading through Hebrews without some explanation, if you were just reading, you would think, wow, this is a bunch of random verses that are kind of thrown here together, and this really doesn't make that much sense to us. But think about this, William Lane said this, these verses are presented as the father speaking to the son, and the church is allowed to listen in. As that is the case, resist the temptation to think, how exactly is this going to help me with a cantankerous coworker or roommate this coming week? How can I improve this area of my life or that area of my life? I know that's a temptation. And, and look, you can find that so many places in so many churches. And I'm not saying, so if you want, that's not my point at all. I'm just saying, you know what, this is exactly, and you'll see it in just a few minutes. This is exactly what the Lord would say to those Syrian refugees. And this would come alive and it would mean the world to them. And don't think because we sit in safety today that we always will. Oh, there you go, fear mongering. Really? Come on. Look, history. Not talking about scripture that says that that, that all who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. History alone. I'm a history nerd, remember? History alone tells us this can't last forever. This American thing. It's not going to last forever. It may be done in another one or two hundred years. I cannot see it lasting that long. It may be done in another two or three years. I don't anticipate that. I really don't. Even if I sound like I do, I don't. I surely hope that's not the case. But sooner or later, these words are going to be very life to us. If you have a terminal illness, if you have lost your job, these words are life to you. Hebrews is loaded with instruction and application, but the writer lays a solid foundation of knowledge and we are best served to follow his lead. I I think we all agree that there's a lot about angels in chapter 1. In fact, a lot of preachers would use this as an opportunity to preach about angels. The writer who preached the Sermon of Hebrews on paper used it as an opportunity to preach about Jesus. The title of today's message is a bit tongue-in-cheek. The answer is always Jesus. I mean, it's not like, you know, you're looking in the Bible. It's not like, where's Waldo? Or like the Sunday school kid, you know, that somebody says, what's the answer? And uh, is it Jesus? You know, is it Jesus? But if you put on the right glasses, and that's what the New Testament writers help, help believers to do. They said, let me show you, this. let me give you these glasses. Because when you put them on, you'll see Jesus everywhere in the Bible. Everywhere in the universe. Everywhere in life. So let's read our text, beginning with verse 1. And then we're going to look a little deeper before coming to the Lord's table. Because we will not take time to walk through these verses one at a time. I'm going to include the references on the screen after the Old Testament passages that are quoted. Seven of them. Don't try to write them down. You can find them easily in in almost any Bible. Just in the ones that just barely have these little textual notes down below. I just want you to see how the writer saw Jesus everywhere in the Old Testament. Especially in the Psalms. So if you would please stand for the reading of scripture. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the sun, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever the scepter of righteousness. A scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning. And the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same. And your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Are they not all ministering spirits. Sent out to serve for the sake of those. Who to, are to inherit salvation. This is the word of the Lord. Father. Bless this reading of your word and and write it on our hearts. Thank you that you have talked about us, those that you have called those who believe that Jesus is the Christ. You've talked about us in ways that boggle the mind. We know who we are. (laughs) But in Jesus, we know how you see us and we're thankful for that. Give us understanding and change us as a result. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you and be seated. When the writer of Hebrews contrasts Jesus' position with that of angels, he's not putting angels down. Look, if you think of an angel as uh, the bumbling Clarence and It's a Wonderful Life or one of the sweet and kind and innocent Uh, types of creatures that we see in the 21st century, portrayed in the 21st century, uh, you're going to have one opinion. But when you look in Scripture, everyone who saw an angel nearly fainted with fright. Angels were magnificent, marvelous creatures. Everyone, Everyone understood angels to be ministers or messengers from God. It was understood by all that angels had played a role in bringing God's law to Moses and thus to the people of Israel. Israel All would have seen angels as superior beings to humans. Would you? If you saw one, you would think so. You would say, oh yeah, angels are superior to humans. At the end of the age, you don't want to be on the wrong end of an angel's business. God is going to use angels to execute judgment. On his enemies in that language again. Over and over and over in Scripture. We don't like to think in those terms, but the Scripture presents God in those terms. We like to talk about contextualization. God says, friends, enemies. With me, against me. Angels are always, the angels, the ones that didn't fall, are always... On God's side. And they do his business. So. When the writer of Hebrews says that Jesus is superior to angels. He is not diminishing the majesty of angels. He's just saying Jesus is better than angels. In our text. Seven Old Testament verses. Or passages or reference. There is so much here. There's no way we could ever cover it all. They're structured so that three pairs. Each make a specific point. Two verses, two verses, two verses. They each make a specific point, And then special emphasis is given to Psalm 110, one, The last verse. Which happens to be the text again for Hebrews. Whenever a New Testament writer invokes an Old Testament verse. Here's what he assumes. You, we read these writers and we read something they say or things that Jesus said when he would reference an Old Testament verse and we'd say, wah, what, what, what is that? Well, if you go back and you look at the larger context and you understand that Jesus was saying so much more than he was in just one word, just one verse, then you recognize, wow, this is, this is way deeper than I ever thought. So, in an attempt to discern what the author intended for his readers, I'm going to emphasize three points in application to the text. You can connect the dots later. First, Jesus is God and must be feared above those who oppose him. Those who lived before Jesus assumed that the Old Testament Scriptures called a person God. When, a, when the Old Testament Scriptures called a person God, it referred to an office. It was not ascribing divinity to a person, even though all acknowledged that it was odd to call a human being God, especially in the understanding of, the, of Yahweh as our God. The Old Testament prophets who spoke of the Messiah put two two and two together and they came up with six. They said, okay, I've got it now. No, you missed it. The New Testament writer said, wait a minute. The answer is four. And look at the Old Testament. There's two and two. And there it is again. And there it is again. It was all pointing to Jesus. Nobody got it before. But God's people get it. Afterwards, when they, what they found was that the Son, while distinct from the Father, is God nonetheless. Furthermore, the Old Testament prophecies about a conquering king are still true. It's only in the future. We want it now, right? I do. I hope it's now. I hope, it's, I hope, I hope Allison and I don't make it to the mountains for one night tonight to, to see our kids and grandkids. As much as we want to see those grandkids. I hope he comes back before then. It was important for the members of this little Roman church, this little Roman house church, to remember this. See, the temptation was to abandon Jesus out of fear. But the writer is saying, and he's going to say it in very plain language next week in chapter 2, God is to be feared above Caesar. Maybe it would be just easier to go back to Judaism and then you'd still be worshiping God, right? Well, if Jesus is God, the logic of that breaks down fairly quickly. If Jesus is God, we have no choice but to worship Him and to deny Him is to risk His denial of you when He comes in His power and glory. He is to be feared above any earthly power. Again, really easy. I am the most fearful. I was fearful of my shadow until I was 45, 50 years old, somewhere along in there. I'm a fearful person. So this is big talk. But you know what? If that day comes, God will give me the courage. God will give me the courage. Second, Jesus is God, and He's worthy of our highest praise and worship. In Hebrews 1.6, Jesus is referred to as the firstborn. Heretics want to put the emphasis on born, as in Jesus was created. But the New Testament authors understood correctly that firstborn was a designation of position and rank. If a couple in our day has three children, and they both die, great pains will have been taken to make sure that their assets are distributed equally in most families, right? If you're the youngest, you're expecting the same share as the oldest, right? That was not so in the ancient world. Typically, the eldest would get the lion's share of the inheritance. Sometimes a double portion, sometimes even more than a double portion. Typically, uh, the firstborn male would become the patriarch of the family. Once the father died, then the next, the the oldest son has this position of rank over all of the affairs of the family. Over and over in this text, the author affirms the deity of Christ. And in designated Jesus as firstborn, Jesus' rule over all things and all creatures in the universe is established. Jesus is over all. He's over Caesar who threatens you. He's over all. The end of verse 6 tells us that Jesus is worshipped by angels. And worship, as we know, is reserved for God alone. Jesus is more than worthy of our worship as well. Not only in song, as we sang so beautifully. I, you know, I just think, why are we doing this? Why are we singing these songs before the sermon? I mean, the, the songs that David picks out perfectly emphasize the point of the text over and over again. And that happened so much this morning. I just kept thinking, Why now? Why not later? So the preacher said, angels worship Jesus and implied was, so should you. He is God and He died to save you. If you're called to die for Him, so be it. Last, Jesus is our ever faithful King who is worthy of our trust. Hebrews presents Jesus as prophet, priest, and king. There are all kinds of complications with him being all three. We'll get to that as we go. In this first chapter, the author is making absolute his claim that Jesus is the king that was prophesied in the Old Testament. The members of the house church knew that if they defied Caesar in claiming that Jesus alone is Lord, then they were in trouble. When, through the years... This wasn't happening at this exact time, but very shortly after this, after the mid 60s, Christians were required to say, Kyrios Caesar. In other words, Caesar is Lord. Kyrios, the word for Lord. Also, the Greek word for Yahweh in the Old Testament. Uh, let's don't go there. Caesar is Lord. But you know what the Christians would say? Kyrios Jesus. Jesus is Lord. He's the only God. And later, after this initial round of persecution, the emperors, they, just, they didn't want to execute Christians on a, big, on a wide level. And they would say, yeah, 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 I get that. Okay, right. Jesus is Lord. Yes. Just say, Caesar is Lord. And then you can say, Jesus is Lord all you want. And they would say, Curios Jesus. And they would say, crucify him. Take him to the arena. And it was quick usually. Uh, There weren't many appeals for this, unless you were a Roman citizen. But most people weren't Roman citizens, especially Christians. Now, here's the interesting thing. Jews were given a special exemption. Jews didn't have to say, Caesar is Lord, because they would have to execute the entire race of people, and that was complicated, because they were spread out all over, everywhere, and things just didn't function in Ephesus the way they did in Rome, and, and Antioch, Pisidia, and all these different places. So, so, look, okay, the Jews get a pass. All others in the empire, including Christians, were required to declare first allegiance to Caesar. So what if that became true in our land? What if the government said, it's fine for you to worship Jesus as long as you say that the President of the United States is Lord first? Then you can worship Jesus. What would you do? That was the question that the church faced for about the first 250 years of its existence. I mean, at the time of this writing, they didn't even get the opportunity to deny Christ if they were arrested. Because Nero needed scapegoats and Christians fit the bill very nicely. So if you were going to avoid persecution, you better deny Jesus now. There was safety. These were all Jewish believers, or most most of them were. There was safety in saying, I'm a Jew, I'm not a Christian. But I'm still worshiping Yahweh. And the writer saying, no, you're not. If you're not worshiping Jesus, you're not worshiping Yahweh. So how did the author encourage these believers? You could understand that why they were nervous. How did they encourage them? Well, look again at verses 8 to 12. But of the Son, he says... Your throne, oh God, your throne, Jesus, is forever and ever. This is one of the great things. The writer is saying, look, this didn't catch God off guard. This didn't catch Him by surprise. Your diagnosis, your your the downsizing of your company, that didn't... The, The person in your family that despises you. None of that caught God off guard. God anticipated it all along. And what he's saying is. Move your eyes from down here. To up here. Your throne O God is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness. And hated wickedness. Therefore God your God. Has anointed you. With the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you Lord. Laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning. And the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish. This world is changing all the time. But you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe you will roll them up. Like a garment they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. (laughs) In many of the Psalms that the author chose for this text, God conquers the enemies of his people. The writer didn't promise them that they would avoid martyrdom, but he did assure them that they worshiped the King of Kings, who would never change and who would endure although this world passes away, they can always trust that the sovereign God of the universe knows what He's doing. And the author would say it this way in Hebrews 13.8, a verse that has meant a whole lot to a lot of you. Jesus Christ is the same today, yesterday, today, and forever. Amen. As the elders and deacons come forward, if you would, and the worship team. As they come to serve communion. Let me invite all of you. Whether you're a member of Grace Community Church or not. All baptized believers who confess that Jesus is the Christ. That he alone is Lord. Join us at our table this day. This place of remembrance. And this place of spiritual nourishment. See, one of the great things about all of this that we're learning in Hebrews. The writer is saying, identify with Jesus because he is identified with you. And all of that is going on again at this table. We are identifying with Christ. He is identifying with us. There is remembrance. There is an honor. There is a memorial. But there is nourishment at this table as well. God meets us. Jesus meets us in a special way at his table. And, and, and we gather together. One of the reasons we come forward is so that you are connected with the body. You're not in your own little world. It's the way that believers have done it through the ages mostly. And it's a relatively new thing, sitting down and passing. But, but we are reminded that we are the body of Christ we serve one another and once again so appropriate that on this day we are reminded that we are to serve our brothers and sisters who are persecuted Hebrew says a lot about that towards the end we are connected with the body of Christ worldwide we connect with one another some of the elders will Let you know when it's your time to come forward. There will be four stations. Please go to the station in front of your section. And then you'll go back either along the outside walls or up this middle aisle. The Lord said on the night that he was betrayed. And by the way, this is all again part of the message of Hebrews. Jesus, when he comes to the Passover meal, is saying no more this way. Now it's this way. It's not that Jesus is different. Jesus is the final word. He is the completion. Seven verses a while ago. From the Old Testament. The seven. Does that number mean anything to you? It's the number of perfection. Or more specifically. The number of completion. In past days. God spoke through the prophets. In various and many ways. In these last days. He has spoken to us through his son. And we come to this table to affirm that God has spoken to us in His Son. And that our sins are not atoned for once a year at Yom Kippur, which was supposed to be the end of the world. They're atoned for once and for all. Jesus has sat down at the right hand of God. And we partake gladly acknowledging His forgiveness. In Mark... Chapter 14, we're told, and as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, take, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And essentially what Jesus was saying is, part of the prophecies are going to be fulfilled in the next three days. Next four days. Part will be fulfilled later. And the day that I come back is when I will eat again in the kingdom of God, when I come in power. For now, this is how we eat. This is how we are reminded that Jesus died for us and this is how we identify with Him and He identifies with us. Let's take just a moment in prayer before we partake at the table. Next week's um, text is going to really set you back and shock you if you have not looked at it carefully. There are five warning passages in the book of Hebrews. And with all the beautiful promises that are made to us about provision for our sin, provision for eternal life for us because our sin has been dealt with, there are times When special warning is given and coming to the table is one of those times in scripture. We are to come having confessed our sin. And saying that we will refuse to live, continue to live in sin. That doesn't mean you're going to be perfect by any means. But when you say, you know what, I'm okay with this. I believe God's okay with this and you know it's wrong. There's a warning not to eat. At the Lord's table. It all fits together this way. (laughs) If you don't eat at this table. Do you belong to him? So in other words. God's made provision for our sin. To be forgiven. Take advantage of it. Know that God delights. In forgiving us when we are contrite. When our hearts are broken over our sin. If there is something in your heart that you need to confess before the Lord. Just do that right now. Quietly, alone, in your own thoughts and mind, in your heart. Lord, forgive me. Please help me to overcome this sin that has a control on me. That's all he's looking for. Sincerely saying, I'm sorry. And sincerity can go just... Just ask the Lord. God forgive me. Oh Lord we're thankful for the night that Jesus raised the cup. And he said this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Thank you Jesus. God of the universe, royal king. That you have chosen us to follow you. That you have called us into your family. And that you readily identify with us. Thank you for the body that was broken. And the blood that was spilled. Because that was our lot. We were headed for judgment. But Jesus stood in between your wrath and our sin. He who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Lord, we believe. Thank you. Amen.
0: Would you remain standing for the benediction? taken from the book of Hebrews, chapter 13, verse 20 through 22. Now may the God of peace who brought again the dead, our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with every good thing that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. Through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen.